the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Group Captain Peter R. Davies, CSC, Chief of Staff, Air Combat Group. Group Captain Peter Spike Davies enlisted in the Royal Australian Air Force in May of 1988 as a direct entrant air defence officer. Following air defence controller course, he served with Number 3 Control and Reporting Unit and Number 114 Mobile Control and Reporting Unit before qualifying as a fighter combat controller in 1992. After instructing at 3 Control and Reporting Unit, Peter was selected for Airborne Warning and Control System training with Number 8 Squadron RAF, qualifying as a Boeing E3D Sentry Airborne Warning and Control System Weapons Controller and Fighter Allocator. Peter commanded Number 1 Radar Surveillance Unit from 2009 to 2012, receiving a conspicuous service cross in the 2013 Australia Day Honours. He later commanded Number 41 Wing, responsible for the air defence ground environment, over-the-horizon radar and emerging space surveillance capabilities. Peter's operational service includes flying as AWACS air crew on NATO operations for the independence of Bosnia-Herzegovina, completing over 100 missions and receiving the NATO Medal with former Republic of Yugoslavia CLASP. Staff appointments include wing-level appointments, capability development group, headquarters surveillance and response group and Air Force headquarters. Peter also has overseas experience serving with the Royal Air Force and the United States Air Force. He is a distinguished graduate with a Master of Science in National Security Strategy from the United States National War College at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. Group Captain Davies is married to Catherine and has three adult children. Spike, or Group Captain Peter R. Davies, Chief of Staff Air Combat Group. It's great to have a chat this morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've got to start with the obvious question. You enlisted in 1988. Why? Because, well, it actually goes back a little bit before then, but I always wanted to fly. So I initially joined to be a pilot. I was found out for my awesome lack of flying skills (laughs) on the Mackie and uh, got out and then I rejoined because I just missed being in the Air Force and I missed being close to what was really going to be the the fun part, which was uh, air combat type stuff. So I rejoined as an air defence officer. Okay. So uh, the interesting part for me is that you were a direct entrant uh, uh, as an air defence officer. What is that? What's what's the difference from just joining up? So direct entrant for really was uh, you go to recruiting, like to join, they uh, slot you into a, the right box and once you sign on, you go direct to OTS, Officer Training School, and out of there you went straight into a, um, a qualification course. So it could be pilot's course or it could be uh, air defence controller course. Um, you didn't have to, you didn't do the, um, the academy at the time or what is now ADFA. Yeah, and what was the 138 pilot's course like? A lot of hard work. 
It was a, we actually went through as a dual course uh, with 69 NAV when we went through OTS and then we split off. But uh, 138 pilots, I think we um, can't remember how many people we had on the course, but the, the ones that are sort of just only uh, left Air Force are people like uh, Air Vice Marshal Al Clements, who was probably the last one of the pilots uh, to have left from that but we had a big mix some survived some didn't yeah and uh, obviously it was a selection process and you work your way through and the the people who weren't qualified or weren't quite able they were weaned off is that the way it works yeah you you sort of yeah you lose some and at the one fts stage and then you go to go to the mackies and then the jet phase sort of sorts out the next lot of people and then out of that you then get the selections of uh what platform you go through at the end of the day, whether you're a fighter, transport, um, helicopters were still the go then, so you could sure. have gone the Chinook or something like that. So you've also said with the CT4As and the MB326Hs when you were soloing, you were not quite pilot material. How did you end up in the Air Force if you're not quite pilot material? Tell us about that. Well, I was enough pilot material to get through recruiting, <laughs> so that was good. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> um no, look, I think at the end of the day, the uh, you know, the, the CT4 was uh, – I, I did okay there. I had a bit of air sickness issues with the CT4 and then that sort of uh, went across on the, to the Mackie. Um, that may have impacted a little bit on how I approached the game mentally. So uh, I probably wasn't in the mental game at the time. But I was still only young. I was straight out of high school. So – Hindsight would have been best to have a break or something. Don't know. Just being rude and in, in interrupting, how do you explain the difference between the CT and the Mackie in terms of you were seasick in one and not necessarily in the other? What was the differences between the two that may have initiated that? I was actually could get seasick, seasick, airsick in both. It was more of, I think, a, a mental thing. If I was in control of the aircraft, I had no issues. So I could, you know, do arrows. I even went into the, um, the era of medical flight desensitizer to see. If there was other issues there and I could get thrown around in the black box and no issues at all, um, it just became a point when I wasn't in, was not in control of the aeroplane, uh, the air sickness effects started to take over. Yeah. So and is, um, is, is that something I couldn't get through? Is that something that the selection process would at that stage or even now look at if a person is looking to be a pilot and they're reasonably good at being a pilot uh, but they get air sick? Is that a thing that may negate you progressing? Depending how severe it is. Yeah, we, we, I'm still aware of some people, even uh, mission crew in, in P-8s or uh, in uh, E-7 to a point, but, you know, P-8 for the maritime patrol stuff, you know, air sickness is an issue, but it just depends how well you can manage it. Sure. I won't dwell on it, but what happens when you get in a domestic or an international flight when you're not in control but you're a passenger? Does it affect you then or it doesn't matter? That uh, doesn't affect me at all. I think it was just more of a... I had, the, I had the best front front seat view that I, I could possibly <laughs> have, but then it was a case of uh, trusting the other person, even though he was far more qualified than I was. Yeah. So take us through the steps <laughs> leading to actually qualifying as a fighter combat controller. How did that all come about? So I suppose the journey sort of started from 88 when I uh, graduated from the Air, um, Air Defence Controller course at Williamtown. Did my time at 3 Karoo, 3 Control Reporting Unit, up on Duck Isle Hill, uh, controlling fighters, um, everything from you know, 1v1s up to 4v4 and 8v8 type formations, uh, exercises. Uh, it's then just a case of professional development, 
um, getting that combat experience in multi-ship controlling scenarios. And, uh, and then the, every two years is when the fighter combat instructor, fighter combat controller course uh, is held. Uh, it's now part of the air warfare instructor course, which is just completed. Um, but when the selections came around, you're sort of looking further the senior flying officers, you know, junior flight lieutenants with the requisite experience. And um, I was lucky enough to have have that experience and went on as a as a flying officer. Yeah, uh, someone who's listening to you right now may not have anything at all to do with the air force, and they're asking themselves, "What is an air defence controller? What is it that?" That's a, that's a good question because back in the day, people used to think that I protected airfields and uh, did what the airfield defence guard did. So um, really what the air defence controller, we now called air battle managers, um, but really what we do is we are the, if you like, the eyes of the airspace. We uh, coordinate the intercept of air, aircraft with fighters um, we can do the battle coordination. We do the command control aspects. Uh, it's sort of like being in charge of a, an awesome video game without having to put 20 cents in each time. Okay. It, would there be a similarity be in during the Vietnam War to the uh, air contr- the person who was in the little single-engine single, single engine plane trying to control the whole thing and direct where, where he- helicopters are going to go and where fighters are going to go? Is that, that a similarity or not? Uh, I suppose it's it's a reasonable analogy. Um, they're doing stuff more on a localized tactical level for a for a defined outcome, whereas as a, as an air defence controller or a fighter controller, you're you've got a greater uh, expanse of airspace. You're looking at you're looking deeper into potentially uh, enemy territory, and you're coordinating multiple formations uh, to synchronise their attacks or their defensive posture against any threats that are coming through. Okay. And you're also looking at, you know, when you're going to sequence people onto anywhere refuelling aircraft or when you're going to uh, rotate um, formations from uh, land-based, you know, um, recovery-type uh, scenarios where you need new cap come in and um, send the other ones home. All right. Well, I, I'm in a hot zone. I'm in a, an F-18. I'm in a Hornet. Uh, you're the... Uh man in control of it. What's our relationship? How do, how, do we, how do we communicate to each other? So back in the good old days when I started, we would be purely using radio. So uh, we would be using uh, standard air-to-ground air communications. Uh, we have our own way of talking, so we'd have our own set of code words. Um, before HaveQuick, we would have our own set of Australian unique code words. So we could minimise the amount of talk we had to do to convey the same amount of information with a with a sharp word, and we would basically talk to each other. I would tell you where I'm seeing things. You would then use your aircraft systems to find those things. Just if I can interrupt, if at that stage, if you're only, you're only talking to me on radio, how can mm-hmm. you see things ahead of me that I'm meant to target? Sorry, good point because I've got my longer range um, air defence radars looking into the battle space. So I'm now looking further out uh, and then I'm taking the fighter on a journey to a point where I can then get them to put their own radars onto that particular target. Okay, that given that in 2022 the F-35A has a very sophisticated radar system, are you now redundant or are you still able to see much further than that particular pilot? 
Uh, I can still see further. Um, not redundant, but the game's changed. So from where we started, um, me just talking to uh, an F-18 using air-to-ground radio communications, we now start to introduce encrypted voice. So that was another way that we could talk a little bit more freely about uh, things that we're trying to describe. We then introduced tactical data links. So then we start to really talk about Link 16. So now what I'm doing is I'm basically converting my radar picture with track data, so synthetic track data, uh, putting that over, again, a UHF radio link, uh, which goes into the cockpit, and then the cockpit can see a select number of tracks that need to be um, worked on. Wow. If we evolve that now to the F-35, um, similar things are still happening. The F-35 has, again, another increase in capability of its sensors, um, so it brings other features to the game as well, but it still needs that initial long-range picture to situate itself and then start to work what um, sensor data it's acquiring but also sharing with other platforms. So in that role, where are you based? Are you sitting in an office somewhere in, in, in a, pla- a location in Australia or are you in the hot zone as well? What's your, what's your venue? Um, so back in the day, you'd be closer to the actual hot zone, as you're calling it, um, because the the location where your radar was and where your, um, your air ground air radios were basically going to be pretty close to where the battle space was going to be. As time's gone on, we've been able to um, have the radars forward in a location with remote radios, and the actual controlling is done a bit further back. Um, like 114 mobile control reporting unit, you know, they'll set up a, a mobile command control environment in a location or could even right, come right back to somewhere like the Eastern Regions Operations Centre if you wanted to and do that from Williamtown. The other way then is being in an aeroplane. So, you know, if I've flown AWACS but, you know, the guys flying in Wedgetail today, they'd be out there with the, the fighters so they would be closer um, yeah. purely because they're limited by um, what they're radio communications uh, capability is. And is the criteria for your role uh, a prerequisite that you must have been a fighter pilot or are there now people who do your role that who are not former pilots? Uh, no, it wasn't never a prerequisite, but it always used to be a good, um, I suppose, a, a, a graveyard for uh, failed fighter pilots or old <laughs> fighter pilots. They used to always end up uh, in the air defence community. So if you look you know, back in the history of um, the various people who were part of the air defence community, um, a lot of them are old fighter pilots who, yeah. once they stopped flying, they uh, still did the job mentally, but they um, did the job using a radar and a radio. Okay. Um, as the technology has advanced and we're now looking at drones and even pilot-less planes, uh, aircraft, is that role, your role, still relevant? Do you still now have control of those drones? Uh, so the technology is still advancing to where we want to actually work out how we do that, but I think in simple terms for the future, yes. Um, the battle space management aspects are still important. There's still going to be a mix of uh, uninhabited but also inhabited platforms. So you've still got to coordinate those aspects Um the uninhabited platforms are going to require a bit of pre-mission planning, um, a bit more detail, um, just to try and de-conflict them from the actual manned missions that are going on as well. 
Uh, and then the question is, uh, who actually then controls those? Are they going to be fully autonomous? Probably not. Probably not at that stage yet. But is there a controlling element sitting somewhere? Is it sitting in a um, control reporting unit? Is it sitting in a wedge tail? Is it in a P8? Um, yeah. Is it on a ship? Or could it even be done from another fighter potentially? So given that the Australian area of influence is out really the Pacific, not Europe and not the Middle East, but it's the Pacific, um, uh, it, should there ever be a situation where the Royal Australian Air Force is needed to be involved in some activity within the Pacific, are you more there then more likely to be based on a ship, given the size of the Pacific Ocean, or are you still going to be based in some central headquarters? Uh, again, I think it. I think the easiest question is it depends. Um, sometimes we'll so the ships themselves have uh, fighter controllers who have been trained by the RAAF. Oh. So they will. So they actually go through three career. They get training um, at the surveillance control training unit. Uh, they'll qualify, so when they're not at sea, they'll actually operate out of three crew. So when they go to sea in the air warfare destroyer, they then deploy. Um, if we needed to supplement that, you could find uh, Raffi's sitting on a, on a ship somewhere yeah. if, if needed. Um, but more likely, it's going to be the Wedgetail guys and um, some iteration of either the Eastern Regions Operations Centre doing stuff with remote comms and remote sensing. Um, or 114 mobile control reporting units being deployed forward to a location to try and cut down some of those um, other distances that we have to fight with satellite connectivity and things like that. Yeah. How did the uh, controller become involved with the Navy? Because sadly, sadly, we don't have an aircraft carrier. We don't have, well, I'm assuming, making assumptions here, we don't have, with the Navy, we don't have airplanes. Uh, So is that what? to protect the ship against potential attack from an aircraft or is it to work in conjunction with the Royal Australian Air Force? Um, so air intercept controllers, AICs as they're called, um, obviously when HMAS Melbourne was around, it was, you know, it'd be a, a key part of that, I suppose. The uh, But um, we still have a requirement for the ships when they're out there, they'll take aircraft under control and they'll, use the fighters for their own cap and potentially go out and do strikes. So it's just an extension of the air battle management framework that we have uh, between us and and the Navy. You you really are in a a fascinating area of the Air Force, Uh, your your career. uh, It's it's an aspect that a non-RAAF person looks at and think, wow, you've got an amazing job, really. It's been an awesome career. It's been great. Um, it's not over yet, don't it? <laughs> not over yet. You know, the, the desk is not the most appealing thing if you're trying to uh, encourage young kids to to rock up to recruiting. But um, no, look, it's been it's been a, an entertaining, you know, nearly 35 years. Uh, I've done a whole bunch of different things. Um, unfortunately, when you get promoted, uh, you get further and further away from the cool pieces of kit. Yeah, always, um, always promote the most skilled person out of the area in which they are skillful. Yes, I understand. Yeah, Let's look at some of those areas because you had some time with the Royal Air Force as well and the United States Air Force. How did the time of the RAF, the RAF, come about? Uh, so the RAF um, was a um, a result of the Royal Australian Air Force acquiring Wedgetail. So at the time. You know, we were getting the platform, or we knew we were getting a platform. So there were three contenders back in the 90s. But as we were getting close to selecting Wedgetail, it was then a case of um, we need to actually get some experience in these 
these uh, this new technology because Australia never had a, an AW platform before. We had a an exchange with the US Navy on the U two um, Sea Hawkeyes out of um, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, that had been going since about uh, probably about eighty nine ninety. Um, we had that, and that was sort of a an entree from Northrop Grumman to expose Australia because they were also one of the contenders for what our wedgetail capability could have been. So at the time, I was actually targeting that because it was a known quantity. It was a posting and uh, th- there was no no mystery to it. Um, the RAF one came up, uh, started being talked about sort of in about the 93, 94 timeframe, but it was a, just rumour mill going we're going to fly with the Brits, you know, get some experience on their brand new E3Ds. Um, what's I an E3D? Sorry, what's it? Sorry, the E3D Sentry. So the, you know, the 707 airliner with the roof racks on top. Okay, right. Um, so at that point in time, it was sort of like, well, that'd be cool, but it's not definite. So I kept targeting the E2 Hawkeye, but at the end of the day, I got selected for the RAF exchange. So, uh, yeah, went across with 8 Squadron. Uh, converted onto the uh, E3D Sentry. So they were the last of the, the Sentry platforms that were built by Boeing. Um, the Brits and the French um, bought the last one, so they were they were bitses. Um, if you look at the airframe down the down the fuselage, you could not see a nice straight line. You'd see little bits of uh, you know, panels uh, sort of made to fit. That would have um, been reassuring. <laughs> Back comes my air sickness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then that's how I found myself with the RAF flying on eight. So and what was it like? conversion, what three was it, years of uh, on the squadron. What was it like working with the Brits? Uh, it was – my first impression when I walked in, it was like a, a step back in time. Um, you know, we'd only just started getting, you know, network computer systems in the workplace uh, back home in Australia, and I walked in there, and there I think there was one computer that everybody haggled over. Um and it was just, it was just different. Um, but it was, it was good fun. Um, we had a double crew, so uh, a crew size was normally around about um, fourteen. We had twenty-seven people on the crew. Um, everybody from um, pilots right down to the various technicians on on the jet. Um, Six-month course. It's as long as what the surveillance guys need. I was a weapons controller, so I had the the fun job, not the not so fun job. What, um, why, why is a weapons controller not such a fun job? No, the weapons controller is not well, the surveillance. Oh, sorry, you had the you had the but, interesting job. Yeah, so I had the interesting job because I could still talk to fighters and uh, do intercepts and whatever else, whereas the surveillance guys would just be crunching the radar picture, putting a track picture together, and that'd be about it. Okay, okay. So the RAF kept became came before the USAF, or was that which which came first, chicken or the egg? Uh, the Royal Air Force chicken came first. Okay. Yeah, so I did that for three years, came back to Australia um, into 41 Wing as uh, Air Defence Ground Operations, um, sort of managing the, the operational output of what uh, our units were at the time. So you, we still had you two in fact, you, com- you commanded that, did you not? Uh, I eventually did, yes. Yeah. But not when you first came back? Not when I first came back, no. Okay. I was just a, I was a squadron leader staff officer inside okay. the in the wing. Uh, and then uh, I went across to the US... Uh, in 2000 um, on the Wedgetail project. Um, I then went and did time with the US Air Force in uh, 2007 That's when I started that one. So, yeah, still a bit of time to come before I went to the USAF. So how would you uh, 
compare the differences between the RAF and the USAF in terms of operation, in terms of personnel, in terms of training, whatever? Uh, I think the I think the starkest thing is just size. Um, you know, the RAF is bigger again than the Air, you know, Royal Australian Air Force. Um, you know, a lot of stuff is very homegrown type technologies, which you know is just part of their resilience piece. But when you go to the US Air Force, it's just a it's just a step up in size again. You know, the the amount of equipment they've got, the amount of people, um, the size of the bases, um, the resourcing that they've got to do the simplest things was just on a different scale, mm. and that changes everything considerably. Let, let's just chat about some operations I know you're involved in. Operation Deliberate Force in 1995. What was that all about and how did you get involved? Uh, so part of what the Brits were doing at the time um, was uh, Bosnia. So under Bosnia and the NATO operations, they were doing uh, deny flight, so monitoring what uh, flights were happening out of Serbia uh, predominantly. Um and then when I went across, uh, I entered into that operation and then deliberate force was uh, was when the first bombing happened to um, destroy some targets that were starting to um, target Allied flights, but also uh, bombing into uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina itself. Right. And who was in charge? Not yeah, Which country was in charge of that whole operation, that, that particular deliberate force operation? So it, was a, it was a NATO operation. NATO operation. So yeah, the, and, the, and the way the Brits ran, the Brits were part of NATO, but we were still a um, we were still a component. So the Brits kept national control of their assets, like the E3, um, but we were contributing to the NATO game. So a lot of our stuff then we deployed out of uh, Aviano Air Base in Italy, um, which was a US Air, Air Force Air Base, but it was a NATO operation. So leading up to that, you know, day one of deliberate force, um, Aviano you know, had a, had a massive aeroplanes from a from quite a few nations, um, you know, gather so that we could do those uh, those activities. Was that joint command between the Brits and the the United States, or who who actually took command? Uh, it was still a NATO command. End of the day, so you run a NATO command, and then uh, you ran through the NATO. Um, Air Operations Centre out of Vincenza in, in, in Italy. So everything was NATO NATO uh, mandate, um, but obviously the US was a, a key contributor with mm. the bases and some of the assets. A couple of years later, you were involved in the Albania crisis, 1997. Can you take us through that? Tell us all about that. Yeah, that was an interesting one because, you know, you, you, you would deploy to the region. And most times we would deploy to Aviano and then we go and set up a... Uh, an AWNC orbit over the Adriatic and, and do our job for Bosnia. Um, this particular time, um, we got over the Adriatic and we had the um, the German Transals, you know, entering the airspace as they would normally. They had the right modes and codes for their uh, IFF, Identification Friend and Foe. Um, you know, they're on the right communications frequencies and everything like that. But we didn't necessarily have them on the air tasking order, um, which would normally, you know, sequence everything that needed to happen in and around Bosnia for aircraft going in or doing other surveillance tasks around the airspace. So then, you know, I started asking the question because I'm the, the fighter allocator, so I've got the lead uh, communications piece for the aircraft coming in. 
and uh, I was told uh, national tasking. I'm going, well, that's cool. Um, please explain. And, um, national tasking. So then I have to go back to the CAOC and say, look, I've got these German aircraft coming in. Um, national tasking, what's that? And they went, I don't know. I'll get back to you. Oh. <laughs> so, so meanwhile, we're just watching them fly down the coast of Croatia and initially I thought, well, maybe they're going to land in Dubrovnik, but there was no change in altitude. So, you know, we start giving warnings for uh, airspace boundary with, um, with, with Serbia because just south of there you've, you've got the Serbian um, border and then Podgorica was where we used to watch um, for any uh, Serbian air activity potentially coming out as well to harass. Um, so I'm giving all the warnings and they're just telling me it's a national task the, uh, the AOC had no idea what a national task was, um, but then we saw the Germans landed in Podgorica, um, stayed there for a period of time, and then next we had them airborne again, flying into Tirana in uh, Albania. It wasn't until we landed that night that uh, we found out that the pyramid Ponzi scheme thing that the Albanians were running at the time had collapsed and the Germans were removing nationals out of the country and a whole yeah. bunch of things. So that became Operation Silver Wake. So now I was running two operations to you know, deny flight, which was you know, the deliberate force thing. It had only been a short period yeah. of um, disassembling things. Um, we're now back to deny flight and... I had my controllers manage that piece while I looked after the uh, Albanian piece and trying to keep a, you know, American caps under control so they didn't shoot everything and, you know, we had SAM systems up and a few other things. So it was an interesting period of time um, just watching how things evolved. So was national tasking taking nationals out of the area? Was that what it was? That's what the task ended up being, yes. So they were under a German... German government tasked to go and uh, extract German nationals out of uh, Albania. So who came up with the, the phrase national tasking, which, which no one seemed to know what it was? The Germans. Oh, the... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. It was a very simple thing. I'd leave us alone. We're on, we're on our own. We're doing our own thing. Okay, right. And don't argue with, uh, with another yeah. Air Force. Right. Uh, when I get some background information from uh, Ringo, I'm – always mindful that he, because of his career like yours in the Air Force, he's very familiar with abbreviations. And there was an abbreviation in the one that he sent me for you, an AWAC. Now, I, in, obviously in research, I, I get to find out it's an airborne warning and control system. Can you explain to me what an AWAC is, what its job is, what its role is, or what your role was? And why is it yeah, called uh, yeah, so the AWAC was the E3D that I flew on. So it was the American Airborne Early Warning System uh, that they put together um, as a way of providing the airborne radar, airborne um, airway communications pieces, data links, and eventually they also got fitted with electronic uh, support measures, so being able to, if you like, sniff up uh, electrons to work out whether there are uh, any enemy radars or the like uh, in the battle space as well as part of that um, battle space management picture that was being put together. So it was basic. So an AWAC, if you say AWAC generically today, it really means an E3 sentry, um, irrespective of what variant that might be. Uh, if you then, say, talk about um, the US Navy platforms, they're Hawkeye AEW, so they're just airborne early warning. Right. Uh, 
when we did Wedgetail, we were very specific about um, we wanted to make sure we had the control piece clearly articulated, so we made sure that we um, articulated that capability as an airborne early warning and control capability. So you, you'll see Wedgetail as AWNC, yep. but it's essentially doing the same job as an AWACS, but AWACS is synonymous with um, E3. Mm-hmm. I, I want to come back to that in a moment, but let me ask you, you went, you do end up, I think, 2009-ish or thereabouts in command of number one radar surveillance. And in that role, I believe in 2013, you were awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross. So could, firstly, can you tell us about number one radar surveillance, what it is, and how you came to uh, be... a given the Conspicuous Service Cross? Uh, yeah, so one RSU, um, when I was uh, selected to be CO, so yeah, end of 09 is when I went in as uh, commanding officer, um, it was the over and radar unit. So um, one RSU's main main capability were the three over and radar, radars that uh, sit in um, Queensland, Northern Territory and Western Australia and command or controlled out of the uh, RAF base Edinburgh facility. Um, it's now called one remote sensor unit because it now does also space, so it's another remote sensing piece. Um, but during that period of time, um, I came, as I said, I, I liked doing the fighter control piece. Uh, <laughs> going there, I always uh, never had a never had a desire to go to one RSU as a controller because it was no control. But going there as a commanding officer with fighter combat controller experience, I can now look at the capability differently and do different things with the radar to make it more tactically um, uh, tactically relevant to a, to a modern fight rather than just being a strategic surveillance asset. Mm. Um, the, uh, the conspicuous service cross that came out of that um, was basically how we or how me and my team, and obviously the team part is the key piece because I just might have a good idea every so often, but somebody's got to make that good idea uh, into actually something that's worthy. Um, we we advanced how we used the radar. We were going under a new contract at the time, so we had to look at how we could do things better with less, less funding, um, which we achieved. So we did different procedures but still increased our ability to do certain tasks. And there are a few personnel challenges I had at the time as well, which, you know, successfully managed those. Um, So all that together, uh, I was uh, deemed uh, worthy enough to be recognised in the um, Australia Day Honours. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. I can just hear from what you've said thus far, your role is a very important one. And central to everything that I've heard you say so far is the word radar. Um, Where would you place Australia... 2022 in terms of our, our our ability and the sophistication of our equipment compared to other nations. Are we up there with the best? Um, so for the over-the-horizon radar capability, um, we are a world leader. Um, that's thanks in part a lot to Defence Science and Technology Organisation, long-time association with that radar and um and always always doing new things with it. And a lot of the time it's just been waiting for the better computer to come along because the software algorithm needed that better computer. Mm. So 
Um, technology has been a key part of making that thing better, um, but DST have had a key role. But we are we are still probably the world leader with over the horizon radar technology and how we do things. Um, when you read articles, um, everybody else is looking at HF radar. So HF radar, you know, chain home World War Two. That's sort of where it started. Uh, it died out a little bit. Lots of microwave radar became the way. Um, so the current, you know, TADAR's air defence radar that uh, the Royal Australian Air Force uses, um, it became the more of the, the system that most of us would be uh, would know when we talk about fighter control and those types of things. Um, but HF has had a bit of a, a resurgence um, of late. A lot of countries are now looking at that type of capability, but we're still leading it. Um, when we talk microwave radars, um, this you know cool company called CEA uh, Technologies in Canberra, who produce phased away radars, um, they are competing with the best that the US could put together. So you know we've got some very smart people, smart industry. Yeah. Um, you know, we if if we're not at the front, we're um, pretty much shoulder to shoulder with the person who okay. is. Second, uh, second air force in the world, uh, the smallest air force compared to the United States and Britain, but up there with the best. It's always good to hear a comment like that from anyone who's involved in the Royal Australian Air Force. Now you're commanding number 41 wing. And there are three areas that I'd like you to just talk to us about. Uh, you've mentioned over horizon radar. That's fa- fa- fantastic. The air defence ground environment and the space surveillance capabilities. Where do we sit Let's take the last one first: space surveillance capabilities, because we've got a new we've got a new section in the Royal Australian Air Force now, haven't we? Space. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so space. So we've we've had people involved with space for quite a long time. Um, when Woomera was active, we had people sitting at Woomera uh, as part of that effort with the US Air Force, and that goes back quite a while. But uh, first space capability came in when I was commanding officer of one RSU, um, and that was the OPIR, so Overhead Persistent Infrared. Um, we were basically taking a feed from a, from a US um, satellite to look at infrared returns. So think, you know, bushfires or things like that, they're the types of things that you're seeing, you know, the heat signature um, from space. Um, you can do things with that. Um, that matured more and more where we had that. Then we introduced the C-band radar, which sits at um, Harold E. Holt. So that was also then controlled from one hour issue. But then as we look at the space capability emerging still is that Woomera posting is now sitting in the US. Uh, we've got another couple of locations where we've got people sitting learning about space. But the most recent thing, as you alluded to, was the establishment of Space Command. Yeah. Um, and that is now recognising uh, the importance of space but how much it is actually growing now, not just from, uh, I suppose, controlling sensors, but everything from putting our own um, satellites uh, into orbit, um, sensor packages, all those types of things. Mm. And that you know, is, uh, I suppose, a recognition of that importance piece. We've all got to have space. Um, we, can't, we can't not do it. Um, sure. you know, we need to bring our GPSs and all those cool things to find out how we go go home from the pub at night and all those things. <laughs> um, 
But hey, uh, my, my, at- my Google sometimes leads me the wrong way. But anyway, go on. <laughs> that, that sounds like an operator error. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, when the US have gone and done the Space Force, we're probably not at that point. Um, but we definitely needed – we knew we needed to do something different because it was just getting bigger and bigger and it was too hard to keep it under one – uh, one unit command, we really need to start to look at how we um, do that particular endeavour because it's just it's so complex and it's quite different from the air side of the house. Yep. Um, what's the RAAF's relationship with NASA in that role or is that in a different level, different area? Uh, it's in a different area. Um, you know, you've had NASA out recently doing uh, the sounding rockets and stuff, um, so they'll be working with the Australian um, space agency type stuff. They have linkages with Space Command, yep. um, so there'll be a, a professional relationship. But it's a, it's a different level. It's more of a, a research piece. Uh, you can brag here a little bit. I think you can brag here a little <laughs> bit. Did did you not in two thousand and eighteen achieve uh, the top student for the National Defence University uh, and National War College course? I did happen to jag that. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> modest. <laughs> What, what was that all about? I mean, had, would you go there voluntarily or did the Air Force send you there or what, was it part of further part of your training or what? Uh, it's part of that um, professional professional military education and training piece. So, uh, you know, I'd finished, well, I was coming towards the end of my tenure as uh, Officer Commanding 41 Wing. Um, it's then a question of what do we do next with Spike? Um, the decision was made to offer the National Defence University in Washington, D.C. to me, and part of that was the uh, National War College. So uh, you go across to NDU, and then it has a number of campuses underneath, and uh, Air Force uh, very cleverly picked the National War College. Um, it you know, talks about strategy. You, you look back in history and all cool decisions and bad decisions and talk about the future. Um, so you have an international program, but you then have the program in National War College with all the US um, services, but also government agencies and things as well. Mm. And that was for a year in DC. So, oh, well, uh, again, again, congratulations. Now, you, you uh, oh, thanks. You've reached a point now where you're getting close to, I think I might call it uh, quits on my career, but you back where you started as a fighter controller, telling fighter pilots what to do as chief of staff of headquarters air combat group. Indeed. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a nice way to go out. <laughs> Get back where I started. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of sort of like that circle of life thing. So yeah, I, I, you know I've uh, you know when I came back from the states, I went to Air Force headquarters, still looking after all of my the capabilities I've grown up with. Um, but yeah, getting to that final stage of the career is like, well, what's the final piece that you know I need to do? And part of it was get back to Williamtown, which which I achieved. So that that was good. Um, but there was something, you know, let's do something different because I've done all the other things. Um, and then Air Combat Group opened up as an opportunity to be Chief of Staff. Um, so I, you know, put my hand up and luckily the, the commander, Air Commodore Olsop, said, yep, come on down. Um, so, yes, yeah, so now I'm inside the castle, whereas before I used to watch it <laughs> from the outside wondering why they did certain things. I'm now part of the... Uh, Part of the castle uh, makeup, and I can tell fighter pilots still what to do and where to go. Okay. So it's, it's good. You, you, you used the phrase circle of life a little moment ago. Does that make you the Lion King, does it? I'm sorry. No, no pun intended. No, no, All right, not, let, not quite. 
Let's Not talk about. Let's, let's let me. Let probably me, more than you can. Yeah, let me interrupt and say uh, you have now three adult children and a very a very happy wife, Catherine. Uh, how did the family handle your career? Uh, look, I think we've enjoyed it. You know, it's uh, we've we've approached um, we've approached each posting as an adventure rather than a than a penalty. Um, kids, have, I've got. Three kids, and they've all been born in different countries. So Oliver was our only true blue Aussie. He was three weeks old when we took him to the UK. Um, Imogen was born in the UK uh, in our house, uh, so she was a home birth girl. So that was you know a different thing again. And then Phoebe was born in Seattle. So I sort of said at one point, I'm I don't need any more postings, particularly if it's to another continent, because it normally brings another child with it. <laughs> but no, we, we, we've we've had a great. Great, great career. We've travelled widely. Um, yeah, we've made. You know, obviously, we have to work when we go and do these postings. Yeah, sure. um, and you know, there's there's a big representational piece that goes with that. But same token, um, we've exploited the opportunity to see some cool things in other parts of the world as well. Did any of your children go into the air force? No, they're too smart for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. They, the uh, they've. I think Oliver came closest when he was looking at gap year, but um, you know he he didn't go any further than a gap year ex- exploration, and then sure, the, uh, the sure. two girls have stayed way clear of that one. One one uh, average pilot in the family is enough, is it? <laughs> one of the few That's is. correct. Yes. Look, uh, Group Captain Peter Davies or Spike. Uh, Congratulations on a, an amazing career. I mean, you've played a very important role in the history of our great Royal Australian Air Force. You are to be congratulated for that and you should be feel proud about that. But more importantly, just to show a person who's listening to the, this interview right now, the Australians really are up there, if not in front of the best of the best. Such a small country, such a small Air Force, but so important. And as the 2022 moves on and the various crises across the planet, people like you are necessary and more people like you are necessary. So thank you for your service. And again, congratulations. Thank you very much, Gareth. Appreciate it. But uh, yes, it's been a great career and there's lots of smarter people coming up behind me. So uh, the the organisation's in good hands. Globally, The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. 
If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.